3: because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
2: What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business, Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
0: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be looking at the philosophical underpinnings of science. Don't run away. (laughs) Stick here. Because we're going to be talking about scientific reductionism. Now, we've done episodes before where we've talked about not just, you know, the the fruits of scientific investigation, but the ideas that lie underneath what we do when we do science. Uh, the, we, we've talked before about that uh, Daniel Dennett quote from Darwin's Dangerous Idea, where he says that, you know, scientists a lot of times think that philosophy is what those other, you know, navel-gazers do over there, and that that science is really free from all the constraints of that navel-gazing, that they're immune to, quote, the confusions that philosophers devote their lives to dissolving. But what Dennett says is, there's no such thing as philosophy-free science. There's only science whose philosophical baggage is taken on board without examination. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a maximum we should adhere to, uh, to, to look at what's lying underneath science intellectually and, and always ask ourselves the question like, uh, is whats is what we're doing philosophically grounded? Does it make sense? Yeah, I mean, it
1: gets it down to the idea
0: of to, to what extent can
1: we truly just sort of mathematically, passionlessly uh break down things into their fundamental parts in order to make sense of them?
0: Yeah, and that is the idea we're going to be talking about today. It's the concept of scientific reductionism. Now, I want to start by clarifying the meaning of that term because mm. – if, if you've heard that term used in conversation, there's a very good chance that you've heard it used in a way that's different than what we mean today.
1: Right. So people responding on Facebook to, uh, say, a news story about a, a scientific study or a theory and say, well, that sounds reductionist. You're just being a reductionist yeah. Right. here.
0: Uh, yeah. So there's one version of the word reductive that means something sort of like oversimplified. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if I say that, you know, the only reason French cooking tastes good is because they use like a full stick of butter in every dish. (laughs) Uh, People, you know, some French chef might say, no, wait, there's a lot of technique. You're taking a very reductionist attitude. Mm -hmm. It's not that simple. Um, Or another one you might hear. I think often these days, if you hear people talking about scientific reductionism, you're hearing it used uh, not in a philosophical argument about the underpinnings of science, but more in an argument about the validity of worldviews. And it works as this kind of snarl word that means something like nihilism or the belief that there is nothing of value, beauty or goodness in the world. That is not what we mean. That's not what the term means in philosophy of science. And that's not the way we're going to be using it today.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of this gets back to the concepts that we tackled in the the wicked problems episode and, and as well as the illusion of explanatory depth. And that's the idea that simple, broad solutions to complex societal problems, uh, complex problems in general, tend to be ineffective and spawn new problems. And you could say that's that's because they take a reductionist approach to it. Robots are dangerous. So we ban all robots. Humans are the cause of war. So we exterminate all all humans. Right
0: now, I wonder if that way of using reductionism fits more into the haters definition Or the definition we're going to look at today.
1: Well, the interesting thing isn't it that the hater's definition is itself reductionist, right? And then maybe (laughs) my that definition is also reductionist because, to a certain extent, yes, when you there are some things that are complicated enough, and if you boil them down, you can boil them down to sort of concrete solutions and and concrete uh, um, causes. And it depends on what you're studying. Like sometimes, especially with societal issues, it's not always that cut and dry. Mm -hmm. There are just too many factors, and it's difficult to test out the solution, certainly in real time. Yeah, because by the time you've deployed the answer, you've created all these additional
0: problems. So that's the "it's only butter" explanation. Somebody's trying to explain deliciousness in terms of butter only, when in reality, (laughs) it's much more complicated. Yes. Okay. So. The, the, what 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 I mean by scientific reductionism and what's usually discussed in uh, philosophy of science is that as a method, mm-hmm. it means that any system or entity existing in reality will ultimately be best understood if broken down into its simpler constituent parts. And the workings of those parts are understood. Okay. Uh, and th- we see this all the time in science, right? Mm-hmm. Science is constantly trying to reduce a complex phenomenon into its parts and find out how its parts work. Yeah.
1: What's, well, it's kind of like, I mean, it's basically what how stuff works is all about, right? Yeah. It's about well, how is this actually working? What are the properties? What are the physical laws involved? Even if it's something as simple as, well for instance, uh, I wrote an article on how hula hoops work a while back. Uh-huh. And so part of that is like the culture of the history of the hula, in the, in the history of the hula hoop, where it came from, how it gained popularity, how it's utilized in different yeah. ways. But you also get down to just the basic physics of what's going on. When a hula hoop is swinging around a body in motion
0: and you can reduce it to physics. So in that sense, I think that is a perfectly valid way of using a reductionist approach is saying, like, what are the most basic laws and elements and explanatory uh, uh, systems that are in play? When you see somebody hula hooping and there, and and I can see where there would be people who would say, who are like such hula hoop enthusiasts (laughs) that it would
1: say, stop explaining, trying to explain the magic of hula hoops. When you explain the physics of hula hoops, you take all the fun out of it. Oh, That would be a crazy statement because the
0: fun's still there. We're just explaining how the fun works. Right. And the the controversy we're talking about today in this example, we can probably use a better example in a minute, would not be uh, (laughs) whether it takes the fun out of it, but whether it misses something crucial. If you just describe Ah, a hula hoop in terms of the the basic physics of of how it goes around the body, are you missing something factually crucial and autonomously true about the phenomenon of hula hoop? Hula hooping, something
1: vital to its
0: functionality. Yeah. OK, uh, that's probably not a good example. But uh, one other way we can look at what scientific reductionism is, is that it's a it's a hi- hypothesis on the final nature of the relationship between science and reality. And so it can be interpreted to mean that, in effect, every correct explanation of the world can be reduced to the most fundamental, lowest theory of reality. And it, uh, essentially everything is physics. If you go deep enough uh, now, there are going to be a lot of reductionists who will say, now, I understand that we need sciences like psychology and chemistry mm-hmm. and political science and sociology to explain things that it would be ridiculous <coughs> to think we can explain by looking at all the elementary particles. Right. Um, but that in principle, we should be able to explain all those things, given just our understanding of elementary particles and forces. They're just too complex for us to understand right now. Right. Right. Okay, so let's try to put this into a specific concrete example. Uh, if, if you accept that everything in the universe is subject to the laws of physics, and I think, Robert, you and I can agree that as far as we know it is, Yes. Uh, then everything in the universe ultimately could be best explained by fundamental physics or whatever we find lying underneath fundamental physics, whatever's the ultimate theory of everything, the ultimate underlying law of the universe. Uh, and so uh, l- let's uh, look at a higher order phenomenon and, and try to say what it would mean to reduce it. So I I came up with this horrible example. Okay. Let's an, appa- an apparent case of psychogenic blindness. Okay. Okay. So you are with your family on Thanksgiving, and so they get to pick what movie you go out and see. And you are overruled, and you go to see the new Adam Sandler movie, in which uh, I imagine the next one's going to be. Adam Sandler plays the 15th Dalai Lama and also plays the Dalai Lama's really loud, flatulent twin sister. 25 minutes into the onset of this film, you go blind in both eyes. Now you go to the doctor and the doctors can find no evidence of injury or neurological dysfunction. So they classify this as a rare case of psychogenic blindness, blindness that's induced by psychological distress rooted in a state of mind. OK, and we, we've discussed this on the the show before, especially in terms
1: of certain uh Uh, Almost supernatural occurrences, right? Right. Where like there's a mystical experience and it leads to a a bodily manifestation.
0: Yeah. And so in psychology, there might be some framework for explaining what happened to you. Uh, And that framework would be a theory like knowledge. It would be explanatory talking Mm -hmm. about causes in the mind and uh, and perhaps solutions that take place in the mind. But of course. Assuming that we had a complete understanding of, of the whole state of your body at the level of neuroscience, fully explaining all of your brain tissues and functions and how they were interacting on the reductionist hypothesis, we actually shouldn't need the psychological explanation, right? That's just a convenience. If we understood everything there was to understand about the physical nature of your brain, We wouldn't need psychology. We wouldn't need the psychologist to say what's happening with your blindness. We could just look at the cells in your brain. Now, of course, if we had a perfect understanding of your brain from the perspective of cell biology, explaining what all the cells in your body are doing and how we technically wouldn't need the neuroscience explanation, we'd just say, "Okay, here's the cell theory that, you know, this is what explains everything that's going on, and then you could reduce it further. You could say, well, of course, if we had a perfect understanding of every uh, molecule in your body from the standpoint of fundamental chemistry – understanding what all the atoms and molecules are doing and how we wouldn't need the biochemistry or, you know, the biology or biochemistry explanation. And of course, if we had a perfect understanding of the whole state of your body from the standpoint of fundamental physics, you know, elementary particle physics, the quantum mechanical wave functions of all the particles and energy states in your body, we wouldn't need the chemistry explanation. So ultimately, the hypothesis goes like this. If we're able to explain everything in the universe in terms of fundamental fundamental physics we would and that would be the best explanation it's only our lack of understanding and our lack of knowledge and computational power that forces us to conceive of explanations Of things that are more complex than fundamental physics, like chemistry, like biology, like psychology, like, uh, you know, sociology or or political science. Um, but at bottom, the best explanation for everything is here are the particles and their, you know, energy states and vectors.
1: Now it's almost impossible to think about something of this without, like this without thinking about comparisons to like our modern computing experience. Right. You know, like thinking of hardware and then on top of hardware, the code, and I'm simplifying here, but then on top of the code, the sort of uh user interface and then our interaction with that user interface. So it seems like you would have, I mean, realistically, you would have problems that occur with the root of that problem at different levels in that uh, in in that depth, right? Something you might have a problem at the hardware level. You might have a problem uh, at the, uh, the the user interface level. Mm-hmm. But if we had a complete enough understanding, we could address any problem
0: from the bottom. Exactly. So the the physical reductionist would say, okay, but if you had a perfect understanding, yeah, everything there would be energy states and elementary particles. If mm-hmm. you understood what all of them were doing. You could fix any problem at any level. Okay, yeah. so, so not even going down to the hardware level, but yeah. going down to the, 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 the even more
1: primal levels, going yeah. into the, the very basement of reality.
0: Yeah. And so the question today is looking at that perspective of the world, is that true? Is that a correct understanding of what science is um, or are higher level sciences, more complex sciences like chemistry, biology, psychology, sociology and so forth? Do these sciences have unique insights that are not present at the lower levels of more simplicity uh, of, you know, simpler realities? Uh, Are they just the best we can do to understand complex phenomena like society, minds and organisms? Or do they are they intellectually autonomous? Do they have something original to offer? So like the counter argument here would be that that physics and carpentry
1: engineering can explain the the way that a stage is built, but they're not going to have any impact on, say, the play that the actors on the stage are reciting.
0: Sure. Yeah. You you might. uh, Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of uh, an analogy that works, I guess. Um, One of the things that I do want to make sure we're clarifying is that I don't plan on Robert. You can. You can violate this if you want, but I don't plan on exploring arguments against scientific reductionism that are based in a belief in supernatural causation. Yeah. No. Uh, because uh, as we mentioned in another recent podcast, I, I'm not even sure the concept of supernatural causation is coherent. I'm not I'm not sure that it's incoherent. But then again, try to picture it. What are you picturing? Usually yeah. you're just picturing natural causation with uh, with some kind of blurriness or some kind of detail obscured. Right. It's like the hand
1: of God analogy. If if the hand if God is something outside of our universe, then for that hand to reach into our universe to do something, it has to. Adhere to the laws of physics. It has to wear the glove of our reality, at least, and then has to therefore be observable as a physical phenomenon
0: Yeah, to do something. It has to do something. Right. (laughs) Uh, But uh, but we will instead look at uh, a different concept that is the concept of emergentism, a, a philosophical distinction. That says that there are large complex systems that show genuinely novel properties due to their complexity that are not inherently predictable from or reducible to the combined effects of their simpler, more constituent parts and ultimately not predictable from or reducible to fundamental physics.
1: Okay. So let's- And look- this is where I come back to my perhaps imperfect analogy of the stage and the actors on the stage. Okay. You can't have one without the other but one seems to be operating in a way that the the lower level cannot fully predict or
0: control beyond the, like very basic levels. okay that yeah, I can see that I think that's a good analogy then I'm sorry if I was skeptical at the
1: beginning no 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 a, a healthy dose of skepticism is
0: uh is, is important here Uh, Okay, so given our given our idea that uh, we're going to look at emergentism as a form of of material understanding of the world, you know, it's an extension of science, not not an expression of like vitalism or supernaturalism. What are some examples of things in nature that we might assume are not able to be explained by fundamental physics?
1: Well, a big one is intelligence. Oh, yeah. yeah, Even playing like Dungeons and Dragons where you have a definite intelligence score versus (laughs) like wisdom or charisma. Yeah. I often find myself in conversations with uh, the people I'm, I'm playing with like, well, is this would this be an intelligence check or a wisdom check? Like we really have a very ambiguous idea of what constitutes
0: intelligence. Yeah, but at the same time, intelligence is, I think, uh, by the fact that you consider it this separate property, that mm-hmm. you have this separate score in, it's natural to think of it as something that discreetly emerges at higher levels of complexity and isn't reducible to simpler objects. So, uh, yeah, like you said, it's sometimes kind of difficult to define intelligence. What is it? Uh, my favorite definition that I've come across is that intelligence is The tendency of a system to accelerate the solution of problems. Okay. It leads to faster solving. So, uh, however we define it, we know it when we see it, right? Intelligence is highly useful, ubiquitous, undeniable. It's part of our experience of the everyday world. But can intelligence be explained in terms of simpler fundamental units? I don't know. After all, there is no indication that a single neuron possesses anything like intelligence. There's no analogy for intelligence below what things like brains or computers do, at least as far as I can tell. But even then, it's far more
1: complicated. I mean, we've all... I feel like we've probably even covered it on the show before the whole topic of what makes a genius. What does a genius's brain look like? Yeah, and yes, you can you can draw certain, uh, you, you can look to the, the the gray matter and line up various factors, but a lot of it is going to be beyond that. It's going to have to do with. With, uh, with, the, with the experience and personality of the individual.
0: Yeah. It's the whole boys from
1: Brazil scenario. We're trying to clone
0: <laughs> Hitler. Yeah. So, I mean, assuming that animal intelligence or computer intelligence is not magic, mm-hmm. we're not believing it's magic, but uh, that it's still possible that it can't be explained reductively by recourse to more fundamental sciences, that chemistry alone can't explain intelligence. It's something that only happens to matter at a certain level of complexity and configuration. And is not predictable from lower levels of understanding. Uh, So what what would it mean to understand intelligence at the level of single cells? I I don't know, maybe it's possible to do that. But Mm -hmm. at least sounds like a very difficult project.
1: Yeah. I mean, so the basic idea here is that interactions among smaller entities lead to larger entities and that there's a self-organizing aspect to reality. Uh It's what economist Jeffrey Goldstein called, quote, the arising of novel and coherent structures, patterns and properties during the process of self-organization in complex systems. Right. So I think like a, a classic sort of science uh, example I always go back to is just the accretion of cosmic dust into smaller bodies and clouds, building mass, exerting gravity, forming stars, planet, everyth- everything else, mm-hmm. gravitating uh, around each other, held in, uh, in uh, gravitational enslavement um, uh, in, in to each other, and becoming the system, a system that emerges initially from just particles floating around and bumping into each other. Right
0: and thus and uh, thus it does obey the laws of physics at every yeah. level but is it reducible to and predictable from those laws when the the case of just like
1: basic uh the, the basic assembly of solar system of a, of a galaxy i would think yes i think yeah. this is this is definitely a a physics based uh bringing together of properties but it's such a maybe it's because it's just such a grandiose thing to imagine assembling from such minute pieces it it feels an appropriate metaphor for the emergence of say consciousness the emergence of intelligence hmm. because if dust can turn into the milky way galaxy and and i'm simplifying uh but but if if something so vast and complex and energetic can can, can 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 come together from such small pieces then it makes sense that something as at least for the on the individual level as complex and amazing and brilliant as intelligence and, and consciousness that that too could emerge from just things bumping into each other.
0: Well yeah and there you do say something that I think should put us on guard against the concept of emergentism which is that it feels good yes. to us you know mm-hmm. the idea that no 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 you know things like intelligence and and higher order concepts uh really are somehow unique at their level of organization and mm-hmm. they're not just reducible to elementary particles and, and energy states well, um, I, I that's would... that's something we like to feel right. and so thus I think we should be a little on guard about about that idea
1: yeah but I, I would to counter I would say that basically the the idea if consciousness if being conscious of being alive feels majestic yeah I think we can look to just the universe itself and say well if the universe in all its majesty, is based on things bumping into each other okay. you know randomly and an order arising out of all of that then it's no great stretch to say that the mind is the same the cosmos is a
0: humiliating analogy
1: yeah, well, yeah, because you can go either way. You can say, my mind is like the universe, man. But you can also say, hey, your mind is just like the universe. It's just stuff bumping <laughs> into each other until
0: uh, a system emerges. Okay, well, maybe we should look at a few more examples of supposed emergent behavior that you can see in nature. Systems where, uh you know, at a complex enough level, things seem to happen that are not obviously predictable from the simpler components acting alone. Well, evolution is a big one, of course. Oh, yeah. Just
1: the, I mean, that's the, the, the basic underlying principle, right? In the, in this, uh, this constant race, the survival of the fittest, yeah. uh, the, the natural selection that, uh, you have all these different forms, these various mutations that are you know, kind of throwing out different, uh, different versions of the same product mm-hmm. into the open market of, uh, brutal survivalism
0: <laughs> and then whatever sticks, sticks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so th- that's a thing. Like, if, if you were just in a universe where there was no life, but there was just, say, organic chemistry, mm-hmm. would you would you be able to really predict that evolution was going to occur? Maybe I I don't know. Um uh what about here's a product of evolution that's often been cited as a really interesting version of emergent behavior hive insect behavior
1: oh yes yeah this is uh this is always a cool concept uh, the view of uh, eusocial insects bees wasps ants uh termites etc uh but especially especially bees and, and ants being like the, the the prime examples of this yeah uh they're in a, they're essentially an emergent system. Uh, after all, you know how else is all this behavior going to get there? Right. Like nobody's programming the ants. Nobody's telling them, "Oh, you're the queen
0: and you do this." Uh, no one ant or one bee is able to display anything like the hive behavior we see. Yeah. And not even any small group of them show these rudimentary signs of it. It's only when you get enough of them interacting that hive behavior emerges.
1: Yeah. And out of all of these little interactions, these roles, it all adds up to a kind of, and it's important to say you know, non-sci-fi in the non-science-fictional sense, a hive mind. You know, you the, mean,
0: they don't like share a conscious experience,
1: right? They're not. You know, <laughs> they don't have their brains all hooked up with tubes into a you know floating mega brain or something. But in a very real non-sci-fi sense, there is this hive mind, this hive think that uh, emerges, and they're able to do something, do many things as a group, solve problems as a group that the individual is just not. I mean, it's almost cheating to say they're incapable of it because they they are capable of it as this sort of meta organism that they become, just not on the individual level. Yeah. And, uh, this approach has proven very useful in artificial intelligence and robotics. I'm sure you've covered this, uh, in the past in the, the, the forward thinking oh, podcast, yeah. the, the, the study of, uh, of you social insects and figuring out how to, as robotics and engineers face challenges in the interactions of simple machines, machine learning. So you ha- essentially have the creation of like little robots that are behaving like ants.
0: Yeah. Uh, here, here's another big one. Consciousness. This is oh, probably yeah. the thing that is most often discussed as uh, as a potentially irreducible phenomenon in nature. Uh, so you have a mind. You don't just have a brain, but you have a mind. Assuming you do have a mind. I don't you know, it's impossible for me to know anybody else in the world has a mind. I, I assume you do. You seem like you do. <laughs> and You claim to usually. Uh, but yeah, you've got a mind, a conscious experience. And there's no analogy that we can find or that we have good evidence of at lower levels, Right. There's no evidence that single neurons are conscious. There's no evidence that uh, atoms or molecules or anything like that have any kind of rudimentary consciousness. Some people assume this. There's like a ph- philosophical position known as panpsychism, mm-hmm. uh, which is the idea that at some it's in some kind of way, consciousness exists all over the universe in okay. all matter. This is the idea that any sufficiently
1: complex system may manifest as consciousness.
0: No, no. This is the idea that, that all matter is in some sense, that a rock is in some sense conscious. Right.
1: By, by virtue of being like a, a complex system. Oh, okay.
4: Yeah. Because yeah. so,
1: uh, even a rock is 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 complex when you start breaking it down and you start really diving deep Powers of Ten style into uh-huh.
0: it. Now, I, I think that's an interesting speculation, but I don't see any evidence for that. It, it would be hard to know what evidence for that would be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I like, I, I like it too. I think it, it lines up nicely with some, uh, with various supernatural interpretations of reality, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure how much I'm willing to invest in it, uh, at this point. Uh, so yeah. So we, we Until have the rock speaks, right? When will it speak? When, what would it say? That's the thing. I mean, a rock's a rock. It's, I mean, it's seen a lot of stuff, but it, it hasn't really been up to much.
0: You got mud on your face, big disgrace. So, oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, yes, we we'll rock you. Yeah, good good reference. You can shame me later. Okay. One more thing I would think of is uh, the human equivalent of yeah. hive insect behavior. Uh, what about? Uh, Social sciences, sociology, political science, anthropology, the study of what humans do in large groups. There seem to be phenomenon there that are not uh, strictly predictable from just understanding of, say, psychology. Could you look at a really, really good understanding of psychology and say, this is how societies will work? I don't know. I mean, there are those who – Extrapolate meaning from psychological concepts to those who attempt to. But, yeah, yeah it becomes increasingly complicated. Uh, one, it, talking about this difference between, uh, you know, uh, reducible phenomena and emergent phenomena, one of my favorite often misattributed quotes. Uh, Joseph Stalin is alleged to have said, un, falsely alleged to have said, quantity has a quality all its own. I've always liked that quote. Uh, I can't find any evidence he ever said this, but mm-hmm. it does sort of echo a sentiment explored by Marx and Engels in their writings about economics and their adaptation of Hegelian dialectical philosophy, uh, that, that quantitative differences over time, which is what we'd sort of be looking at for uh, for reductive philosophy of science, mm-hmm. just quantitative changes, actually do become qualitative differences. More is not just more. In many cases, more is different.
1: Yes, and I think this, this plays in nicely with a couple of papers we'll look at later in the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as we're throwing out quotes, one I always uh, have, have enjoyed on this sort of topic of emergence is one from um, the poet Wallace Stevens. His oh, poem, yeah. Connoisseur of Chaos, a violent order is a disorder and B, a great disorder is an order. These two things are one. Pages of illustrations.
0: Oh man, that's a good one. Yeah. Stevens has a lot of great quotes that I think somehow apply to science. Yeah, you know, when I often uh, I, I get i get these feelings about what must be true in science, but then I often hear in the back of my mind that line from the Emperor of Ice Cream. Oh yes, let poem. be be finale of seem. Hmm. He's a good one.
1: If, if anyone out there is looking to pick up some thought provoking poetry, get yourself a book of uh, Wallace Stevens and uh, and uh, flip around in there.
0: Okay, well, I think we should take a quick break. And then uh, when we come back, we will look at one of our main resources in this episode, a classic paper from the history of science from the 1970s called More is Different.
2: Ever tried to tackle a home improvement project without making 10 trips to Home Depot? What if I told you there's a way to earn cash back while you shop? Introducing Drop, the ultimate rewards app. With DROP, you can earn free gift cards by shopping in-store or online at Home Depot and tons of other stores. Download the DROP app today and use code DROP33 to get an instant $5 in points. That's DROP, your go-to for shopping rewards. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
4: This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job and he gets it done because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
0: All right, we're back. So tell me, Joe, is more different? That's a good question, Robert. Uh, That's sort of the central uh, question of this episode. As you reach higher levels of complexity, you get more things together interacting. Do different, uniquely new properties emerge, or is it just more and more? Well, in 1972, the Nobel Prize-winning American physicist Philip W. Anderson published this massively influential, highly cited paper in the journal Science, And the title of the the essay was more is different. And as you can probably guess based on the title, uh, what position he took on the emergentist debate. Mm -hmm. So Anderson writes that uh, while at the the time he was writing, which was 1972, philosophers might still debate uh, scientific reductionism. But he said scientists don't. Scientists just take scientific reductionism for granted. Uh, And his formulation of the reductionist hypothesis went like this, quote, the workings of our minds and bodies and of all the animate or inanimate matter of which they have any detailed knowledge are assumed to be controlled by the same set of fundamental laws, which except under certain extreme conditions, we feel we know pretty well. In other words, he's saying when you chase causal explanations deep enough, it all boils down to the bottom. It all goes straight down to fundamental physics. And. That is as it should be, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why we
1: established all of these basic, fundamental physical laws and interactions because we wanted a, an an idea of how the the universe works. Yeah, and so everything should boil down to those laws. Yeah, if it doesn't, that would indicate there's
0: some sort of problem with our laws and our physics. Exactly. Yeah. What what good is physics if it's not actually fundamental? Right. Uh. So. Anderson says, you know, if this is true, many, many people assume that it entails the idea that very few people in the sciences are actually working on anything fundamental, anything autonomous, anything original. Uh, and to illustrate this example or this frame of mind, Anderson quotes this passage from the theoretical physicist Victor F. Weisskopf, uh, which uh, which sorts all science into these two categories, which Weisskopf calls intensive and extensive So intensive research tries to discover fundamental laws. Extensive research tries to explain phenomena with the use of known fundamental laws. So at any given time, a minority, a a very small minority of scientists, generally in fields like particle physics, are working on describing fundamental laws that govern reality. Um, They're doing the intensive science and meanwhile, the vast majority of scientists are just taking the models of fundamental laws and applying them as an explanation for anything, for why the rain in Nashville smells like hot dog water. Does it? Or what? Yeah, sometimes, oh, sometimes. Sometimes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, sometimes rain anywhere smells like I hot know. dog it's, water. I haven't spent enough time in Nashville or, to or, know. You know, anything. Why your eyes won't stop bleeding. Okay. Uh, so th- the, the extension of this distinction, some presume, is that Once we have a fundamental theory uh, of physics at the base of all science, there's no intensive science left to do. Does that make sense? Like you could still apply theories up the chain, but there's nothing original left to discover. It's just continually the application of what we know to different phenomena. But Anderson throws down a flag here. He says, hold on. Let's say we accept the reductionist hypothesis that we can reduce complex phenomenon explanations uh, to simpler, more fundamental physical laws. That doesn't necessarily imply the converse, which he calls the, quote, constructionist hypothesis. It does not, in his words, it does not imply the ability to start from those laws and reconstruct the universe. Hmm. So what is science supposed to do? It's supposed to be able to predict, Right. If you have a correct scientific theory, you should be able to make accurate predictions about the future. Right. Uh, but if you can't make accurate predictions about the future from the fundamental laws of physics, then do the fundamental laws of physics really describe everything? so in in anderson's view uh why does it not imply that we can start from the fundamental laws and predict everything? Um, you know shouldn't we be able to do that in 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 principle Well, according to Anderson, the answer is no, and Anderson says there are uh, two main problems with the cr- constructionist hypothesis: one is scale and the other is complexity. And I just want to read a quote from him. Anderson writes, quote, the behavior of large and complex aggregations of elementary particles. So that would be anything. Right. A, a football, uh, to return to a hot dog, mm-hmm. a, uh, you know, jar of pickles, a Twinkie. Yes. Uh, I guess I'm all thinking of co- <laughs> <laughs> cylindrical foods. I'm not sure why. Um, uh, the, the behavior of large and complex aggregations of elementary particles, it turns out, is not to be understood in terms of a simple explanation of the properties of a few particles. Instead, at each level of complexity, entirely new properties appear, and the understanding of the new behaviors requires research which I think is as fundamental in its nature as any other. So he's throwing in with uh, with a certain version of the emergentist hypothesis. Studying what happens to more complex bodies, like studying what happens to a jar of pickles, is doing original research. That is actually yielding uh, hypotheses and theories that are not predictable from just understanding the the particles that make up that jar of pickles. Well, this re- just reminds me again of uh, societal examples and, and the idea of wicked
1: problems, They're like yeah. rolling out a solution into a complex system that is society and not realizing that the solution is going to spin off additional problems. It's going to create additional complexity. There are going to be emergent uh, problems out of your solution.
0: Right. Yeah. There are things we can't predict from simpler principles, even if those simpler principles are correct. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so just to clarify, Anderson accepts that the sciences of more complex phenomena are explanatorily dependent on the sciences of simpler phenomena, right? Psychology is, in a sense, dependent on biology. We couldn't have it without it, you know, uh, which is dependent on chemistry, which is dependent on physics. But explicitly, he rejects the idea that this means psychology is just applied biology or that biology is just applied chemistry. At each of these new levels of complexity, genuinely novel properties emerge, which are not necessarily predictable from a complete understanding of the more fundamental science. Uh, And he grounds this in an example from his own field, because he he works in many body physics. And uh, he, he grounds it in this concept that is known as symmetry breaking. So what does that mean? Well, for Anderson, the study of fundamental physics is almost synonymous with the study of symmetry. In other words, fundamental physics is the search for the laws of reality that are Homogenous and isotropic. Now what does that mean? It means they're the same everywhere and they apply to everything, no matter from what vantage point you look. That sounds like a good description to me of what the fundamental laws should be. In other words, they're fundamentally symmetrical. They're they're the same everywhere. Right. It works in the city, works in the country, works on Earth, works in Alpha Centauri. Right. And that that's what physics should be. But while all matter obeys basic electrodynamics and quantum theory, many objects in the universe and not just minds and societies, but uh, Anderson uses examples of tiny, basic physical structures, many of these objects display novel or asymmetrical properties, which he says are not strictly predictable from the symmetrical laws that govern them. Uh, So these asymmetries include, he gives examples like uh, the inversion of the ammonia molecule, the shapes of atomic nuclei, like sometimes an atomic nucleus you can work out mathematically, is in a sense shaped like a football or shaped like a plate. Uh, and he talks about the structures of crystals. These are, you know, they, they should be they're based on symmetrical laws, but the symmetrical laws end up generating asymmetries in reality. So in Anderson's view, the question is, why are large systems not just bigger than elementary particles, but fundamentally different from them with unique properties to study? And here I want to read a quote from Anderson. He says, quote, the essential idea is that in the so-called into infinity, in approaching infinity, limit of large systems, which means stuff on our own macroscopic scale. It is not only convenient, but essential to realize that matter will undergo mathematically sharp singular phase transitions to state at which the macros uh, microscopic symmetries. Uh, and even the microscopic equations of motion are in a sense violated. The symmetry leaves behind as is, As its expression, only certain characteristic behaviors, for example, long wavelength vibrations, of which the familiar example is sound waves, or the unusual macroscopic conduction phenomena of the superconductor, or in a very deep analogy, the very rigidity of crystal lattices, and thus of most solid matter. There is, of course, no question of the systems really violating, as opposed to breaking, the symmetry of space and time. But, because its parts find it energetically more favorable to maintain certain fixed relationships with each other, the symmetry allows only the body as a whole to respond to external forces... Uh, so, again, he, he's not saying that a big system, macroscopic system like a jar of pickles violates the laws of physics, but he's saying at certain levels of complexity, large objects make more sense understood as a whole than at the level of their constituent parts. Uh, and the whole has a novel scheme of behavior that's not easily predictable from the nature of its elementary particles. And then of course there he's like well, well now we've just talked about you know crystals and stuff like that but he of course says you know this applies to DNA and stuff like that too of course mm-hmm. once you get much more complex the problem is is magnified all the more uh things just become really uh, seemingly impossible to reduce to or predict from the underlying laws of elementary particles. There are these quantum leaps where uh, it appears that uh, quantity has a quality all its own suddenly. And of course, in the end of his paper, he paraphrases Marx in in that saying quantity has a quality all its own. And then I, I love this. He also quotes a supposed conversation between F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> where, of course, Fitzgerald says the rich are different from us. And Hemingway replies, "Yes, they have more money."
1: Now, this is interesting because it immediately brings to mind some like reductionist uh, criticisms that are thrown out. Uh, I've seen before about, say, the you know human beings. To say, "Oh, well, you can you can dissect a human being. You can you can hold a, a human heart in your hand, mm-hmm. but you're not going to get a sense of who that person was based on that experience."
0: Yeah, and I I would say actually that um that Anderson is not the final word on this, obviously, Mm -hmm. like people disagree with him. Right. Uh, But uh, this has been a really interesting and influential paper. And it's also not to rule out the idea that redundant sciences do exist somewhere. For example, there might be fields of science that really do reduce to nothing more than the application of principles of a more fundamental field of science. But it just looks like this is not the case for most, if not all, mature scientific fields. Uh But so, somebody out there in a lab right now, it could happen to you. You could be reduced to a simpler study field of study. <laughs> Okay, but maybe we should look at a counterpoint. Uh because as as I mentioned, not everybody agrees with Anderson. Uh what, and so what if maybe it's not as different as you think? More might seem different or feel different, and more might be useful to treat as different given our limitations, but maybe it's not really different. There's nothing actually unique going on at higher levels of complexity. It's just convenient for us to treat it that way. Okay. And here I want to come to another Nobel Prize winning American physicist, uh, Steven Weinberg, who offers a really interesting complementary counter analysis in his 1993 book, Dreams of a Final Theory. Have you ever read anything by Weinberg?
1: I am not sure that I have. Well, that
0: he's a really good writer. Mm-hmm. He, the first chapter of this book is just this brilliant, rollicking, fun adventure through science, through chemistry and particle physics, if you can believe that, <laughs> uh, where he, he talks about a piece of chalk. Mm-hmm. And he's like, let's apply the reductionist hypothesis to a piece of chalk and and, and in every way possible look at its properties and ask Why? And every time you ask why why is the chalk white? why is the chalk shaped like it is why you know any question like that, you can it, what you're doing essentially is playing the reductionist game right oh, you're you're going one level down.
1: I have to do that all the time as a uh as a father, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly asked questions i mean he hasn't asked me about chalk, but I can easily imagine him asking me those very questions why is it white? why does it do this why does it that It'll get, get very reductionist questions about. Virtually everything,
0: and, w- and when you do that, you're putting reductionism into practice. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you're saying, okay, well, I can explain these um, these higher properties in terms of lower properties, yeah, of simpler properties that cause an effect we see at a, gr- a large scale.
1: Yeah, I often don't see see it quite that beautifully. Generally, it's like, oh, geez, I'm just trying to to drive you to school, and now I've, I've got to explain gravity, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because well, you were well, asking about a you know a bird or a football or something.
0: What, like, why did that bird fly into the car window? Is it, is it that sad? No,
1: no, no, no. Okay.
0: Fortunately not.
1: But, you know, it'll just be, you know, random, wonderful questions about just how the universe works. And it'll generally start, start with a particular detail, but it quickly spirals out into these very complex,
0: uh, you know,
1: notions
0: of, of reality. Yeah. Uh, so, so Weinberg is a fan of reductionism. Weinberg, he's looking for a final theory. He Mm -hmm. wants a final, a final theory of physics. And ultimately he says, yeah, maybe not in practice. Can we actually reduce everything to physics? Like it might just be beyond our capabilities, Mm -hmm. but in theory, everything should be reducible to fundamental physics. There should be no higher order insights, really. Uh, it's all there in the physics. So in this opening chapter, he's discussing problems with uh, with putting the reductionist hypothesis into practice. And he, he acknowledges there are plenty of problems. He, he's not cavalier about that. Uh, and one of the problems with reducing things like biology to fundamental physics is that he points out biology is not just a product of fundamental laws, but also biology incorporates stuff that happened in the past. Like, it is the product of both the fundamental laws of physics and some accidents of history, right. in Weinberg's view. Biology wouldn't be the way it was if some different things had happened in the past. Um, so I, I think that's kind of interesting. And in this sense, you see in sciences like biology, the past becomes calcified into structures that all life on Earth uses, and so uh, physics appears to be timeless and universal, but biology is a contingent science. It's a result of something that happened at one point. Hmm. Uh, you, now, you could maybe go to a higher level and say that even physics could be that way. Maybe there, you know, is a mu- maybe there's a multiverse. Maybe the laws of physics in this local universe are in fact contingent. They didn't have to be that way. Different universes could have different laws of physics. That's possible, but they at least appear to be universal in this universe.
1: Okay. So if, when we look at a complex system, we're also looking at a process.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, but then, uh, Weinberg also deals with the concept of emergence, and, and he tries to he, – he's respectful toward it, but he tries to show that he thinks it doesn't undercut the reductionist hypothesis. So he, he cites Anderson's essay, More is Different, and Weinberg stresses, like Anderson, that while most obvious examples of potential emergence are in the biological and social sciences, if emergence exists, it appears to be in physics as well. And he gives this prime example, thermodynamics – uh, the study of heat now you you might be thinking like well how could heat be all that complex Heat is mega complex. If you ask somebody who's been trying to do, you know, calculations in thermodynamics, it's really complicated. And Weinberg points out that uh, in the 19th century, thermodynamics was a fundamentally different and distinct science. It was considered logically autonomous and kept separate from general mechanics. So you might have your Newtonians over here. Uh, you know, doing their mechanics work, and then you've got your thermodynamicists. Huh. And uh, so while physics relied on concepts like particles and forces, he says thermodynamics relied on concepts like temperature and entropy, which just did not have counterparts in general mechanics. Uh, and uh, he says that the only real bridge was the first law of thermodynamics, which was the conservation of energy that linked thermodynamics with the rest of physics. But he writes that the main idea in thermodynamics was the second law, which says that in any closed system, there's this magical quantity called entropy, which tends to increase over time until the system reaches a state of equilibrium, until everything just sort of equals out and becomes very mellow. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he writes, in the 19th century, physicists took the second law of thermodynamics as an axiom. They, they believed it, believed in it basically on the basis of induction. Uh, and you could and still can see examples of thermodynamics all over nature. You can look at the behavior of steam billowing up from a pot and see thermodynamics. You could see freezing and boiling liquids. And then you can even see versions of what look like thermodynamics in globular clusters in space. But. If you see thermodynamics principles play out all uh, over all scales of the universe, from like molecules of H2O in your kitchen to clouds and uh, clouds of stars and galaxies, then surely thermodynamics is logically independent from fundamental physics, right? But Weinberg says no. He writes that eventually the work of theoretical physicists like Maxwell, Boltzmann and Gibbs, showed that, quote, the principles of thermodynamics could, in fact, be deduced mathematically by an analysis of the prop- probabilities of different configurations of certain kinds of system, those systems whose energy is shared among a very large number of subsystems, as, for instance, a gas whose energy is shared among the molecules of which it is composed. So, in other words, they came up with the interpretive bridge to show how thermodynamics reduces to underlying mechanics, statistical mechanics. And this amazing, weird property known as heat Really just is the combined kinetic energy of all the particles in a system. And that's what we're taught in school now. You learn mm-hmm. heat is the kinetic energy of vibrating particles. Uh, and entropy, it's just actually a measure of how disordered the system is. Entropy, uh, it just means the amount of order in a closed system decreases over time. So thermodynamics, he says, has been reduced to underlying theories of particles and forces. And yet Weinberg writes, you know, these higher order complex and seemingly emergent properties like temperature and entropy, which have no counterpart at the scale of individual particles, they're just not there down low, are still useful for lots of kinds of explanations. So he's not saying that higher order sciences aren't useful. They're just not actually fundamental. They're not describing anything novel necessarily. Uh so he he concludes this discussion that um yeah uh, he by saying quote thermodynamics is more like a mode of reasoning than a body of universal physical law wherever it applies it always allows us to justify the use of the same principles but the explanation of why thermodynamics does apply to any particular system takes the form of a deduction using the methods of statistical mechanics from the details of what the system contains, and this inevitably leads us down to the level of elementary particles. So he's saying it's useful, but it's it's elementary physics there. What's driving it is really fundamental physics. Uh, So my interpretation of Weinberg here is that He's using the example of thermodynamics to show that while these higher order sciences uh, dealing with complex phenomena might always remain explanatory useful, they're just never logically autonomous, never fundamental, never independent. And they might be good to retain for purposes of communication and understanding, but they don't describe fundamental truths. For that, you need reduction to fundamental physics uh, paired with an acknowledgement of accidents of history and ultimately a theory of everything. Okay, so basically
1: any of these different fields is ultimately going to be a subset of another field. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss this in terms of some more human elements. Right. Um, so if, if your mind is uh, exploding with all of the thermodynamics, <laughs> uh, bear with us because things are going to get a little more human.
2: Are you spending a fortune while shopping on Amazon? What if I said you can earn cash back while you shop? Introducing Drop, the ultimate rewards app. Whether it's fashion, electronics, or groceries, you can earn free gift cards just by shopping online or in-store at tons of your favorite brands. Download the Drop app now and start earning while you shop. Plus, for a limited time, use code DROP11 to get $5 in points instantly.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
4: This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be.
3: World's number one dad, better than a world's number one dad coffee mug, is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit b a r t e s i a n dot com backslash father to get fifty dollars off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian premium cocktails on demand. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we just looked at uh, some difficult examples of where uh, emergent properties may appear to exist in things like crystals or thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. They might uh, really exist and be fundamental. They might just be an illusion that they're not actually fundamental. But one of the places where people have a really hard time not seeing something uh, unique and original at higher levels of complexity is in the human sciences. Yeah. In things like psychology and anthropology. So maybe we should look at a couple of examples of papers taking the idea of emergentism and applying it to these higher complexity sciences.
1: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this boils down to uh, like, what's the saying? Uh, Three's company, four's a crowd. (laughs) Like there, I mean, in our own experience, we know that as, as more people gather together, certain... Certain, uh, realities come online. Certain, uh, certain social responsibilities come online. Uh, uh, like, for instance, yoga classes. If anyone out there has ever been in a yoga class or an exercise class, if there are just two people in it, if there's just a teacher and a student, one of the, uh, realities, uh, not to be crude, is that there, there is no plausible deniability of flatulence. <laughs> if one person, um, passes gas and it's audible or, you know, or or not audible, if it's noticeable, then there's no questioning who did it. Right. But if there are three, then there's plausible deniability.
0: Then you've got a society, you've (laughs) got suspicion and you've got bluffing.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's just a very simple example. But this takes place the 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 more you expand the social dynamic and uh and there have been studies that have that have looked into this uh, in, in you know broader less crude terms of course uh One paper in particular, and this is one that uh, that that you uh, uh, found for us here, is uh, from Robert L. uh, Carnario. The transition from quantity to quality A neglected causal mechanism in accounting for social evolution.
0: I was interested in this one because it plays on the idea of uh, quantity becoming quality.
1: So, yeah, the basic nugget here is that when the quantitative increase in some entity reaches a certain threshold, the situation gives rise to a qualitative change. So So
0: more is different.
1: Right, exactly. It's that same process. Process. But the idea is that it would break down, uh you know, beyond mere biological and chemical examples. We've touched on some of them already, but like a couple more that the the author brings up here, like the critical mass of uranium or the quantitative difference in the wavelength of the light received by our retina and the effect that has on color perception. Huh. So I guess you can think of in terms, you know, there's a there's a tipping point um, where 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 quantity because it becomes quality.
0: Oh, yeah. I never thought about that. Wavelengths of light. Mm-hmm. So increasing wavelengths, suddenly we just perceive a different color. Right. That's, that's, that's
1: the basic idea. But the author here focuses on the notion that quantitative increases in the form of population give rise to a change in the structure of a society. So it's that yoga uh, example. It's the, the, the threes company, fours a crowd. Uh-huh. Except, uh, he explores it through some, some various other examples here. So. On a basic level, let's say we have a village of humans. Okay. And it reaches a large enough size that, uh, you know, what you end up having factions emerge, clans emerge. Like this is a, this is a, a classic trope of, of various fictional scenarios in which you have outsiders and uh, survivalists. You know, C- Stephen King's The Mist, uh, Lord of the Flies, Lost. You're going to have factions emerge, right? And this is reality television. Wait, did you mean The Mist or The Stand? Oh, both right, I guess so oh, okay, because the mist is like simplified version of that right. they 're all trapped in the supermarket uh-huh. and then immediately there 's like there are like two different factions there 's like the the uh, it 's been a while since i 've read it, but I remember there 's one 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 faction is a little more uh, mm-hmm. apocalyptic apocalyptic than the other <laughs> yeah uh, so who 's to say which one is correct, given that uh, apocalyptic scenario? But uh, we – so so we see splintering in groups. We see splintering in countries and organizations, both real and fictional. I mean, who can forget the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front, right? Right, from uh, the life of Brian. Yeah, yeah. well, you have the, the two different uh, <laughs> resistance organizations that have splintered from the one, and then additional satellite organizations
0: have splintered off as well. I think also there, I guess uh – uh, satirizing the narcissism of small differences. Yes. <laughs> now, when it breaks down to their actual villages, the
1: the Capo villages typically hit six hundred or eight hundred persons. Okay, that's like the their their upper limit. Mm-hmm. The Yanamamo, however, they tend to max out at two hundred or or even a little below, and then they splinter. So the difference here is that the Capo boast a complex social segmentation consisting of clans uh while uh, the Yanomamo have only a few different lineages so the takeaway here is that larger popu- population aggregates uh can bring about an abrupt uh, elaboration in social structure so it's 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 interesting because the uh the larger group the group that's able to maintain the larger village does so by uh by, through this com- complexity like it's the it's almost like if you were to apply to an engineering mm-hmm. standpoint, like to create a, a large domed building uh, is going to be more of an engineering feat and require a little more finesse than uh, like, a, like a small, um, like a igloo type hut.
0: Oh, it's kind of like how we've talked about, uh, like, uh, the difference between building a house and building a skyscraper. Right. The Skyscraper is not just bigger. It's right. a different thing. It's yeah. a different project. You, you can't just have a, approach it with a different mentality.
1: Exactly. You can't just have a, a larger elephant. You yeah. have to a, have a different organism uh-huh. that uh, may resemble in some way the elephant. Um, and so we see, we see that reflected here. He also uh, points out, uh, North American Plains Indians. They de- they de- they displayed a tendency to rely on simple social organizations for small bands. Okay, mm-hmm. so they're ex- existing in in small groups, and uh, they'll have a leader of those groups, but the leader doesn't exert a tremendous amount of power. But then when they the, they'll periodically come together for say some sort of a large hunt or tribal uh, exercise, and then they'll they'll organize under a tribal chief who exerts far greater power than uh, a regional. So it's not it it's. It's not like even a necessarily a proportional, uh, change in power. It's a right. significant change in power. Like the complexity really takes off. And then when they have to splinter again, it all just kind of goes away. Um, but it it's, it's, it seems very emergent in its form. Right. In that it's not like, oh, there are more of us now. This is the way we do things. It's more like this is the way we do things when we come together huh. by necessity. Uh, we're, we're making the, the bigger elephant here. Interesting and uh, he 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 points to uh, uh, some other sources on this he uh, there's a a quote here included from uh, anthropologist Michael J Harner who observed that quote population pressure is a major uh determinant of social evolution and that we see this in all of humanity's greatest transformations so agriculture industry science etc greater land subsistence resource scarcity with consequently intensified competition for its control this leads to the spread of war the development of states <laughs> and all the uh the the human complexity that spreads out from that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about how uh in the sense large society is I guess they're emphasizing here just not predictable from small groups of humans. Mm-hmm. Uh that that it transforms into this fundamentally different thing with uh with different functions and yeah, um I mean, I, I can definitely see this even at a small scale, like, like you were talking about with the yoga class, uh-huh. uh, you know, a, <laughs> uh, this is getting very colloquial with the idea of emergentism, but you know, a gathering of, a gathering of five friends is not just larger than a gathering of two friends. It's very, very different.
1: Yeah. And uh, to come back to the uh, the apocalyptic examples from fiction, we were drawing. I think that's one of the appeals of stuff like The Walking Dead or The Stand or The Mist, in that these examples reduce the human population to a much smaller and at least a seemingly manageable number. Yeah. And then we try to, in a, in a sense, we're trying to reduce societal problems to fundamental uh, properties. Like everything goes screwy because of this character. Yeah. Look how he or she is behaving.
0: You can be familiar with all of the agents that matter, right? And this This is not true of society today. Mm -hmm. There are tons of agents acting upon your life who you don't even know who they are or what their names are.
1: Yeah. Or it's not necessarily, oh, the villainous character. It's more like, oh, it's the the villainous aura that uh, that emerges when this group of people get together with these ideals in mind. And these ideals are actually really positive. But then there's this negative uh, manifestation of it. Yeah, it gets uh, it gets. It gets com- complexity, uh, emerges fairly quickly. Hmm. And then there was another study uh, looked at here, and this is a R. Keith Sawyer Emergence in Psychology Lessons from the History of Non-Reductionist Science. And the basic nugget in this one was uh, that while we often look to psychology for a reductionist view, there's a lot of uh, potential in an emergent view of psychology. The mind is not merely a shadow cast by a functioning brain, uh, which is kind of an analogy I often fall back on, but a a, a higher level emergent system forming the shadow puppet on the wall and continually revising its form.
0: So even Even if you don't take a substance dualist point of view, even if you don't think that the mind is supernatural in some sense, you could still uh, find some merit in the idea that the mind is not fully explicable from the standpoint of neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's that's my take take takeaway from the paper anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just look at all the tissue in the brain and say this is the kind of mind it would generate. Correct. Okay, well, one more thing I wanted to look at before we wrap things up is uh, we've heard from the reductionist view of Weinberg and then we've heard from emergentists like Anderson. But Anderson accepts one interpretation of reductionism. He just rejects another interpretation of it. What about people who, who are way far out there in fully rejecting explanatory reductionism in all its forms? Uh, obviously, the debate is still going on among some fa- uh, thinkers. And I, I found a good short essay from 2014 by the biologist and philosopher of science, Massimo Piliucci, uh, about this ongoing debate. And he discusses the work of a few philosophers like John Dupre, Jerry Fodor and Nancy Cartwright, who have argued against the fundamental unity of sciences and against the reductionist hypothesis. And I think he makes a few uh, interesting points. One, he talks about Jerry Fodor, uh, making a distinction. Uh, about what it means for one science to reduce to another anyway. So you could be talking about ontological reduction, which just means that the more complex phenomena, the mind, is literally made out of the simpler phenomena. You know, the mind literally is dependent upon the brain. You can agree with that. Right. Uh, but uh, the, this part might be pretty obviously true to you. Molecules are made out of atoms. Organisms are made out of cells. Populations are made out of individual organisms. But when it comes to theoretical reduction, which you might also call explanatory or explanatory reduction, the same does not necessarily hold true. While complex phenomena are made out of simpler phenomena, our theories explaining complex phenomena Are different than the things themselves. They exist in our minds, not in physical space. And just because the thing reduces does not necessarily mean that the proper explanation for it reduces. I know that's kind of a strange Mm -hmm. philosophical (laughs) point, but I, I think there's, there might be a grain of truth there. Um, Another thing, though, is that uh, reductionism is not supported by an inductive survey of the progress of science. This is kind of interesting, and I think I, I mostly agree with him on this one. Instead of more complex theories collapsing into simpler ones, what have we seen in the history of science? We've seen exactly the opposite. Instead, we see the proliferation of more and more specialized theories. Right. We don't see the specific science collapsing into the general. We see the general branching off into the specific. Now, maybe this just means our our study of science isn't mature enough yet, you know, like that we haven't done enough work reducing complex sciences into simpler ones. That's possible, but if you're just to look at it inductively, science is not reducing. That's not happening at all. Uh, And one more thing is that Fodor says, you know, the the reductionist assumption is not, as far as we know, actually guided by a principle. It might be intuitive, especially to scientists who have, you know, some other phenomena, uh, who have seen some other phenomena successfully reduced to simpler principles. Think of uh, Weinberg talking about thermodynamics. But what reason do we actually have to assume that biology can be fully explained by physics? Uh, I don't know. My intuition certainly tells me it can be. But my intuition, of course, is not worth a sack of split peas in science. Uh, and then one last idea I wanted to end on, because I thought this was really weird, but also very interesting, is the uh, anti-realism of Nancy Cartwright, the philosopher of science, Nancy Cartwright, not the voice actress who plays <laughs> Bart Simpson. So uh she offers a positive rationale for believing that theories for complex phenomena might not be expected to reduce to theories for simpler ones and she advocates what's known as an anti-realist position and in her case what this means is she rejects the idea that there is such a thing as fundamental laws of nature. Now you might be thinking oh, how on earth could you do that? Well yeah. th- this it sounds kind of weird but think go with her for a second. Okay. Uh I think it's actually kind of interesting. One thing we can't deny is that science works, right? We, we know it works practically, pragmatically. It, it just works. It generates theories that make predictions which are accurate enough for us to make technology and make civilization out of them. But what if they're not, in fact, truly universal and fundamental, but rather, as I said a minute ago, accurate enough And there's really a precedent for this in the history of the pursuit of physics already, because for a long time, what did we have in physics? We had the mechanics of Isaac Newton, and they were accurate enough that we could use them to predict the motions of baseballs. Or if I throw a jar of pickles at your face, even try to study the motions of planets, this could pretty much all be explained accurately by Newtonian mechanics. Um, and we we could we could make uh, technology out of them. We could fire cannonballs, all that stuff. But we now know that, strictly speaking, Newton was wrong. His laws were not able to generate very accurate predictions uh, at things beyond the medium scales of matter and energy. And for those things, they've now been replaced with things like uh, general relativity and quantum mechanics, which can give us even more accurate predictions to explain those weird few cases where min- Newtonian mechanics breakdown in our experience. So where does Nancy Cartwright go with this? She says, well, what if, in fact, all possible fundamental theories are like that? Accurate enough to make predictions, but not actually descriptive of inviolable universal laws. So this could maybe explain why, or at least uh, the the ultimate reason why it proves so hard to reduce all science to physics.
1: Because we haven't Essentially, an imperfect system that merely lines up with most things.
0: Yeah. Oh, I mean, the the, the idea would be, yeah, that the the physics will always be imperfect. That there mm-hmm. is no universal physics at bottom. There's only predictive enough. And in Cartwright's terminology, this would mean that all scientific laws are quote phenomenological good enough to reckon our experience of the world at the level of their appropriate application but not necessarily truly universal and fundamental okay uh and if that's the case that that could es- essentially apply all down the line you know because there is this inherent indeterminacy or uh you know this inherent imprecision at the the basis of all matter and energy you can understand why higher, more complex levels of science would not be reducible to lower ones. So it's like saying there's
1: no United States, there's actually just all these different states. There's no, <laughs> there's no European Union, there's just all these different countries. Or they or to, to go back to the, the states analogy, there are just these counties that are assembled into this, this order. Um, and on an individual level, there can be a truth, but not an overall arching System.
0: Well, I mean, I think she would be saying that at the bottom, there is no universal truth. Okay. So that, that maybe you might have uh, like that. There's no there's no fundamental basis of political organization from what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can use political organization to reckon countries, states counties and stuff and it all works well enough at those levels but there is no bottom of political organization there's no fundamental unit of it that is perfectly real okay
1: yeah all right I can I'm not saying I'd buy her take on it but I can see how it would
0: I, I see how it lines up yeah uh, and I, I do think it's interesting I'm not saying I'm convinced by her point of view I just mm-hmm. think it's an interesting idea well yeah and to your
1: uh, like point that we laid out at the beginning it's a it's a non-magical. Right. Uh, version of this, like certainly we can look to any to to various examples where someone uh isn't buying into it for supernatural reasons, but she right. has a a a scientific theory here,
0: yeah, and so uh well, I don't know well, if I'd call I, it yeah, it, but it, it let's say it, it's at least a non supernatural thing and it it participates inductively and so, right, because yes. it looks at like well, this has been the case in mm-hmm. in some of our study of science, we keep finding out that stuff that we think accurately describes the world is not really perfectly accurate is just accurate enough okay anyway that's what i got so robert are you convinced what what do you think are you reductionist emergentist somewhere in between <laughs> one of those qualified middle grounds oh i guess
1: I've, I've got to fall back on the the sort of uh you know lens-based uh, view of it you know i can put the lens of uh of, of reductionism and the lens of uh, uh of emergence on as needed and certainly see how they they line up with reality but uh but yeah i i mean i i i certainly think uh emergence carries a lot of weight.
0: Yeah, uh, I certainly intuitively feel that sense of emergence. But mm-hmm. then again, I also, when I get thinking in the reductionist mindset, that can make sense to me, too. I guess I'm just very impressionable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what to think about this. I, I do think it's a really interesting subject, though. And I do think it's important always to, to come back to the kind of stuff we're doing here where we pay attention not just to how science is done, but to the assumptions underpinning it. Yeah, indeed.
1: All right. well hey, if you want, uh, if you want to find out more about this topic, other related topics that deal with sort of the, the nature of science and the nature of scientific inquiry, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, links out to various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, etc. And, uh, hey, there's even an old fashioned
0: way to get in touch with us as well. You're right. You can email us as always at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
2: Ever wolfed down a Big Mac and thought, I need some extra cash? Mm -hmm. Then download the Drop app. Get rewarded for dining out and more. Use code DROP22 for $5 in points. Download Drop now.
3: You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top ten for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And...